0: Okay, so my guest today is Christopher York. Uh, Christopher is a PhD candidate at The Open University, and he specializes in the philosophical study of utopianism and is currently completing a dissertation titled Bernard Suits' Utopia of Gameplay, a Critical Analysis. So, yeah, welcome to the show, Christopher. Well, thanks for having me, and um, I'm glad to be here, John. So, um, utopianism is a, is a topic that's long fascinated me, and I used to read and watch a lot of utopian science fiction as a child, uh, in particular, I guess, Star Trek, which I would tend to classify as a type of utopian science fiction, and I've enjoyed reading other utopian fictions as an adult. That said, I've always been a little bit disappointed by the kinds of societies that are sketched in such work. I think it's probably fair to say that you know one person's Utopia is another dystopia, and there are lots of problems and flaws I see in the utopian societies that are sketched in in fictional works. And I've also been very let down by the quality of the philosophical analysis of utopianism. I feel like a lot of work in in philosophy doesn't engage with the idea of utopianism with the kind of rigor that I would like. And actually a lot of discussions of utopianism in philosophy are focused on theories of justice and utopian justice which I think is actually quite of a narrow conception or ideal of utopianism. So that was one reason why I was drawn to your work, because it seems to address what I think is a, a serious gap in the existing philosophical literature. And I've written a couple of blog posts about it, which I'll provide links to for people who are listening to this show. So I, I really just want to try and get your thoughts on the idea of utopianism and the philosophical analysis of utopianism. And just for people listening, I think it'll make sense if we divide our conversation up into three main parts. Uh, The first will just be an introduction to utopianism itself. Second, we'll look at the role of space exploration in utopianism. And then finally, we'll look at what's your main topic, uh, Bernard Suits' Utopia of Games. So, if we start with the introduction to utopianism, I think I'd like to ask you the question that I kind of started with myself there, which is, you know, what drew you to this topic in the first place?
1: Okay, well, I can I can give a kind of a, a granular uh, biographical answer, or I could give a kind of um, more abstract uh, systemic answer. So. Uh, I guess I'll begin, you know, with the, the the granular answer. Like yourself, you know, I was weaned on science fiction and the Star Trek original series, uh, which you were discussing, was perpetually being rebroadcasted on Canadian television when I was growing up. And uh, if you look at those old shows, especially the first series, each one is uh, sort of separated into two parts. The first half is a is a mystery that needs to be solved. Something's gone horribly wrong uh and they have to figure it out right just like a detective novel and the last half is spent grappling with the the high concept thought experiment that the mystery leads to like what if a human had a power of a god or what if you could destroy a computer with a proof that two of the premises in its programming were contradictory or what would happen if you could travel back in time and doing so change the arc of human history um so you know positively uh why I guess I was drawn to uh, utopian uh, literature or uh, depictions of other worlds or heterotopic spaces wherein things were manifestly better or at least radically different uh, from the world as most of us uh, experience on a day-to-day basis and um, you know this heady stuff for a young imagination and the question for me when I looked at these other worlds was always why not rather than why Um, and so that leads into the sort of more abstract answer um, for why utopian uh, appeals and still appeals. You can just look around uh, at the horrible things that people do and you can see the inconsistent or corrupt ideals they pursue that sort of leads to the horrible things they do, uh, the way that they're trapped by their ideologies. And they sort of have this, uh, a lot of people have the inability to embrace or even imagine alternate ways of being. And um, you know, If, for example, people could improve their behavior by recalibrating their ideals along utopian lines, that would be a step in the right direction. So I suppose that at this point, uh, I began a kind of naive search <laughs> for a utopia uh, that uh, I thought was rationally compelling. Whether discovered or designed, to save myself at least, and others if possible, from living uh, lives of uh, a bit of corrupted computer code. Right? So that's that's kind of the the situation, I guess. This the, the uh, pessimistic situation that I see humanity being in. We have this sort of received ideology or received wisdom. We orient a lot of our actions uh, around it, and we end up uh, kind of putting ourselves in, a, in an overall worse situation than is necessary
0: yeah i mean this sounds interesting to me because um partly driven here by a, a sense of disappointment or pessimism about our current predicament and that things could be better, which i think is is right i think you know it's important to to look for ways to improve things but just you know from my own biographical history, I've always found that interesting and in that you know some academics and scholars are motivated by a sense of injustice or a sense that there's something wrong with the world that needs to be changed and i've i always struggle to kind of project myself into that worldview because i maybe it's something to do with my personality or characteristics I, i'm driven mainly by curiosity about different possibilities and less by a sense of of injustice or that the current predicament is is flawed in some way so i, I always find it interesting to talk to people who have that different outlook on things
1: huh. well that's i guess that i would sort of i would consider you maybe um more of a utopologist than a utopianist. In that case, the distinction, I guess, that I would draw out here would be that uh, I I see a utopianist as someone who, um, or a utopologist, sorry, as somebody who's basically interested in the study of utopias out of curiosity, right, or out of uh, academic interest or uh, pursuit of the truth, uh, whereas a a real utopianist would be someone who's interested
0: in creating or politically agitating toward uh, the achievement of the utopia. Yeah, I guess there, there's a contrast there between like a, a political scientist who studies political movements and a an actual activist who wants to really change things. Yeah. But anyway, we, we've been talking and using the term utopianism quite a bit so far, but I guess it's it's time to do what philosophers do best or maybe worst, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, which is to try and define and clarify that concept or idea. So what, you've actually kind of clarified what utopianism is to an extent, but what is a, a utopia? Is there any way that we can define that phenomenon?
1: Yes, uh, I think so. So you had said in the uh, the intro bit there that I think we can fairly say that one person's hell is another person's utopia or vice versa. I, I don't think we can fairly say that. So I think we have to make an important distinction uh, between a utopia uh, and a fantasy or some sort of uh, personal vision of what's best for us. I think if we look at utopia it's just whatever I like, then we run the risk of saying that, well, utopia is a land where, where I'm king and everybody's my slave. And I think that's absolutely misguided and, and doesn't uh, doesn't do justice to to the term. So um, I'm going to put forward the, the following provisional definition, which, which I think, you know, after my, I've had a few years grappling with this. This is the closest thing I can come up with that actually captures the idea. So you can debate this with me. But from uh, my studies, utopia is any prospectively achievable scheme of radical socio-political improvement which would if installed leave all affected parties better off and none worse while respecting the rights of all so let me let me try to break that down a little bit so it's radical because it's ex, it's, it's extreme in its scope so I think that you know when you talk about utopia you have to make a distinction between uh, what is achievable, in the near future and what is achievable in the far future and utopia has to apply to something that, that can't be achieved easily or temporarily proximally so we can't say that utopia is everything we have now except everybody gets a, a free cupcake on sunday right that's that's not a utopia that's a, that's a minor reform uh, of dubious value so the, the radical part helps us separate mere reform from more thoroughgoing um, change to society. Next you have to say that well look it, the scheme has to be rationally compelling and, and part of that is to say that you know by subscribing to a certain vision of utopia, I'm not going to be left off in a in a horrible position or a much worse position than that I, I currently occupy if if I have to, <laughs> it has to be utopia for all, right? You can't just have people um, sacrificing their own their own interests to some some scheme that is uh, going to be their detriment. There's something I I put on utopian visions when I was doing my uh, original survey of utopias for my PhD studies. I, I had to sort between a lot of things that uh, utopian bibliographers with a sort of big tent idea of what a utopia is, um, like Lyman Tower Sargent. He kind of He has that vision of like putting everything in different categories of utopia. I had to say, look, from a philosophical perspective, those that are going to be rationally compelling, they have to pass what I call the the cosmopolitan filter. In other words, they have to respect the rights of all um, persons, not only in the utopia, but but affected by the utopia. So uh, a utopia that treats all of its citizens uh, well, but is maintained and has an ethos of, Perpetual warfare against all of its you know, geographical neighbors, I think, doesn't really uh, doesn't deserve the title uh, of a utopia. So that's that's I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. I don't know if that is any uh, if you have any questions about that uh, perspective definition.
0: Yeah, sorry, I was just trying to kind of note down some of the things that you said um, as you went through it. So it, it's something that is radical that makes sense to me. So it can't just be a trivial improvement. It's rationally compelling now. When you describe that, you, you're, you're kind of making an economic idea of rationality as like it's something that leave, makes everyone better off or improves their conditions and leaves no one worse off and doesn't violate anyone's rights. So it seems kind of broadly similar to you know, the economic idea of of, a, of a efficiency or welfare improvement to me. Um, I mean, maybe that's not what you meant. Or even
1: even from a sort of game theoretical perspective, right? I mean, you could say that um,
0: it's a positive sum game or something. Exactly yeah okay, got that um, now there's one thing that you didn't discuss in detail there, which you, I think you included in the original definition, which it has to be somehow you know tractable or feasible as well it, it can't be complete pie in the sky right
1: that's that's sort of I think that in order for utopia to sufficiently distinguish itself from other uh, forms of ideal society uh, you know such as the perfect moral commonwealth or what have you uh, it needs to uh, actually be a form of life that we could conceive of ourselves inhabiting. And we, have to, we have to sort of look at the process of how it comes about and say, okay, well, these steps make sense. We could take these steps. And I think that's what makes a, a utopia a utopia. I'm, I'm going back to D- J.C. Davis's uh, uh, famous typology of ideal societies, right? He makes a distinction between uh, five different kinds of ideal societies, one of which is utopia. The the sort of characteristic for uh, J.C. Davis of what a utopia is, it's it's a better world uh, that is created by the installation of of laws, right? So it's it's basically um, a man, uh, human-made construct, and it doesn't rely on anything sort of supernatural to take place. I'm just... um, trying to recall his his other ones. So there's the perfect moral commonwealth, which is a kind of a religious vision where everybody suddenly uh, has this deep moral insight and sort of decide to change uh, society, more or less uh, rationally coordinating their actions um, <laughs> miraculously all at once. Um, there's the Arcadia, which is sort of a simple country idea of peaceful cohabitation doesn't really have that sort of basis in law. And there's right, there's the millennium, which is the world is suddenly transformed by a, a deity. Uh, and the final one is the cocaine, um, wherein you know the world is just surreally bounteous. Everything is available for consumption if and when you like it. So I think that you know if you're trying to Sell people, you know, a cocaine or a millennium, uh, or a perfect moral commonwealth. You're you you're basically asking more of them, uh, ideologically or, or metaphysically, if you will, than than you are with a utopia or an arcadia. Okay,
0: okay so I think I think um, like that's that's useful. But so there's one part of that definition as well of of utopia that I want to maybe kind of probe in a little bit more detail because I wonder if you're setting the bar too high. With that concept, so the cosmopolitan filter in in particular seems uh, problematic to me, at least when we talk about the practical feasibility of an idea of of a utopia, because it it requires some um, world in which there's no violation of another person's rights, and there's no attempt to impose a particular vision or ideology on another person against uh, their will through warfare and so forth. So, I mean, I was going to mention this later on, but um, in one of my favorite philosophical analyses of, of utopianism, comes from Robert Nozick's book um, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Which you know, most people when they read that book focus on the anarchy and state parts, and they ignore the la- last part on utopia, which I, I find odd because I think that's actually the most interesting part of the book. Um, and he he talks about this basic problem that you know, there. This kind of goes back to my original point about one person's utopia as another person's dystopia, which is that. There's no single kind of metric or ordering of ideal worlds. Everyone might have a different set of preferences about what they want or what they derive benefit from. And some people in particular might want to impose their ideal on another person. They might be kind of missionaries or... um, well, I can't remember the other term he uses. He uses missionary and and maybe it's people who engage in warfare or co- uh, colonialists, yeah, people who want to impose their vision by force. And other people who want to convert others to their view through kind of reason and, and rationality. This kind of leads him to suggest that there is no utopian world and that the best world is, is actually something that allows people to realize different visions of utopia. And maybe that's a paradoxical idea because it it involves creating this kind of world building mechanism that enables people to realize their preferred uh, vision and that might be a way of overcoming this problem of, of cosmopolitanism but i i would worry in practice that um it would be difficult to p- get people to kind of coordinate on a on a better world
1: yeah 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 i mean i i guess that what what you have to know about uh, both mine and and JC. Davis's uh, vision of utopia is' not it's not uh, technically speaking perfect, nor nor can it be. It accepts the human being uh, as as we find it or find them or find us. It, it's sort of there are injustices that can occur in a utopia. It just can't be a systemic injustice, right? So all I'm saying is that by applying the cosmopolitan filter, uh, that utopian vision subscribes in principle to the idea that everybody's rights must be respected on the, enti- on the planet entire and not just a, a subsection of, of the planet. So let's say, for example, that we, we all discovered uh, – this is very far-fetched, of course – but let's, let's say that we discovered that by, I don't know, sinking Australia, <laughs> we could we could make everybody else in the world – uh, happy forever, right? I, think, I don't think that would qualify as a utopia because of all the poor lost souls in Australia. I think that in, you know, any, any utopia that's sort of built on the bones of people that are trampled over in its creation, right, the either people that you have to kill or enslave, I, I do think that that, um, um, how can I say, taints the, the, the product. It makes it only a seeming utopia, rather than, than an actual utopia. And I mean, let's go back to what you said about uh, Nozick and, and his utopia of utopias or his, his media utopia, if you will. I feel like he may subscribe to that sort of species of utopian pessimism that, that Karl Popper you know, expresses in his uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies and, and elsewhere, uh, where he, he basically caricaturizes utopianism as a kind of breeding ground for uh, fanatics, uh, dangerous fanatics, and I think that that in the in the worst case scenario, uh, that's true. But I think that those people who are dangerous, who are fanatics, they basically have got the wrong idea of what utopia is about. And I think that you know uh, the kind of scare that that Popper raises. I mean, he is he associates it very closely, um, you know, with the worst excesses of the most uh, infamous. <laughs> Um, fascist regimes of history, right? He says they, this is basically a utopian project. I, I think that that's absolutely incorrect. He's got the wrong wrong target in mind. Um, so anyway, yes, I think so. Back to back to Nozick. I think that what Nozick's doing is he's creating uh, a nice, a nice, uh, well-designed system for for managing these kinds of concerns and saying, look, you've got your area, you've got your commune, you've got your commune, you've got your commune. You know, try to advance your vision of the good life in those communes or in those areas or, or whatever you want to call them. And then, you know, if you want to leave and go somewhere else, you're absolutely free to do so. And uh, hopefully, you know, the the media utopia will do a good job of providing the conditions for flourishing uh, without imposing uh, a vision of the good life. Um, so you, you said in your introduction, for example, that uh, you were disappointed with utopian literature, that you were disappointed with uh, why they're so why, why they're so uh, vague or, or dreary? I'm not sure what term you use, but I, I think that this is absolutely a, a function of of where we're at, you know, in society. It's it's much easier to describe uh, hellish conditions than it is anything anything good. So we're all well acquainted with hardship. We're all well acquainted with with the the feeling of being hungry, we all we all have that. So it's very easy to sort of describe um, pain, to describe hardship in a sort of granular way. And this is why I think, for example, that you know Dante's uh, Inferno is much more detailed than the than the Paradiso, because we don't have this acquaintance. Most of us anyway don't have this acquaintance with absolute bliss. <laughs> we can't we can't describe it in a granular way. So you know, of course, the literature, you know, fails in that regard to be absolutely compelling. And you might say also, well, not only is it too vague, uh, it doesn't reveal enough, but it's also uh, too narrow, and then it's, it may potentially exclude other versions of the good life. I, I think that, you know, there's something good about what Nozick's doing, right? He's providing enough freedom and enough uh, isolation <laughs> for for each version of the good life to, to do its thing. And, and maybe, you know, the real utopia, the real liberal utopia, it is something very much like that. I'm not, I'm not ruling that out, and nor am I for forcing, you know, anyone's vision of the good life on anybody else. But I'm just saying that that maybe explains the basis of your complaint, so you know why utopian literature isn't compelling and, and why it ends up being uh, something that we we can't really get uh, a firm grip on, and why it's much easier to to take the you know to to write a uh, to try to write a utopia and then it turned into a dystopia again just because we're we're from this culture of scarcity and it's very difficult for us to imagine a culture of plenitude. It's very difficult for us to uh to inhabit that area uh, that conceptual area because we don't have any you know immediate acquaintance with it
0: yeah I mean so I just think that that was kind of part of well, popper's critique of utopianism was that we don't have the same kind of epistemic familiarity with Ideal states, as we do with um, kind of negative or non-ideal states, and that's why he favoured this sort of negative utilitarianism um, as opposed to positive utopianism. But I mean, just to kind of draw a line under this definitional discussion for a moment, because uh, I, I want to get on to discussing maybe particular utopias. I, you know, I think what you're saying is important to, within that definition because you are you're adding a condition to the the definition that avoids this concern about instrumentalism amongst utopianism, so that, you know, we just have to get to the ideal society, everything will be wonderful then, and we can build that ideal society on the backs of
1: right.
0: misery and suffering of other people who are impediments to achieving it, which has definitely been a problem with kind of utopian political projects in the past, just as fascism and, and communism. Um, so, I think it 's important to add that condition my My only concern is that it might be quite difficult to satisfy that that condition in practice. but I do want to just uh move on to a couple of other points before we we discuss space utopianism. Uh, one is just that in some of your work, you draw a distinction between different kind of types or categories of utopian thinking now you you draw a lot of distinctions, but i maybe want to just discuss one of them here, which is the difference between like the kind of blueprint type model of utopianism and the more procedural or horizontal model of utopianism, which you discuss in in your work. Could you explain that that distinction?
1: Right. Um, So a a blueprint utopia is a kind of vision, which I believe comes from the idea that we have a sort of fixed human nature. Uh, So if you have a blueprint, it basically tells your audience that, well, I think that this is a universally desirable uh, situation that's going to suit all humans equally. This goes back to, you know, ancient Greek ideas that, uh, you know, Aristotelian ideas that we have a, a telos or, or a sort of nature, that, and if we can find uh, the specific activity or purpose or, or end which best expresses or fit, fits that nature, we're going to be be happy. And this is this is this kind of ties into my my emphasis on rational inquiry. If we had such a nature, such a utopia should be able to be discovered by the process of, of rational inquiry into our natures. And so the, the blueprint utopia says, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a final end. This is it. Uh, you can either subscribe to it or not. It's up to you to decide whether or not it's it, it's motivational, rather, whether you want to try to achieve it or not, or whether you want to, to agitate against it. Um, and on the other end of things, uh, we have the sort of uh, non-fixed utopian vision, which I which I would call horizontal. So um, on this model, uh, essentially all you need is a recognition of and a desire to reach past uh, the limits of human achievement. And this is not a blueprint in, in any uh, way, shape, or form. It's dynamic, right? Because we are always... As a species, it seems that we've gone from strength to strength. We've always been able to recognize something we haven't done before. We do that thing, and then the horizon changes. Then we're on to to the next thing, the next the next challenge, whether for us as individuals or us as a species. So, in, in that sense, it's a dynamic utopia. It's a dynamic utopian vision. It's not the it's not the uh, city states of old. It's not you know Plato's Republic. It's it's something which will of necessity change, but it's static in the sense that there is always a horizon, right? So uh, the, the utopian, if you will, it's like the utopia of the month is the best way I can describe it. So once you've achieved what, you, what was once in on the horizon, it's no longer by definition a utopia. You discard it and you embrace the next vision of utopia. So the, the strength of this uh, model is that it doesn't make any ultimate declarations about, you know, the, the kinds of entities that we are, but, uh, the, the danger of this, right. Is that we, we are, it's restless and it doesn't make any, any sort of theoretical commitments. I mean, it's, it's, uh, a. <laughs> it's just always moving forward towards what, well, we don't know. So there's, uh, there's strength and there's also danger in that open endedness,
0: I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a danger that's kind of perpetually unsatisfying in the sense that you never arrive at the utopia. You're always in, on the journey, so to speak. I mean, one other question that I would ask before we move on is just um, why, why treat utopianism as a topic of philosophical inquiry? Why do you, or what do you think philosophers can bring to the table? Um, you know, why not just leave it to novelists or fiction writers to kind of imagine the different worlds or possibilities?
1: Well, I think we've we've touched on this a bit, but you know, it's it's evident that people are willing to kill and and die for their visions of the good life, and this unfortunate condition of people killing and dying for different visions of the good life could be avoided if if only some sort of uh, you know conceptual clarity uh, that is more or less accepted about the best kind of life could be achieved, and I, I think that. This is an urgent task for philosophers whose stock and trade is conceptual analysis. And I think if you if you just leave it to novelists, uh, you'll find that you know what makes for a good story uh, doesn't necessarily make for a good socio-political schema or, or even a thought experiment. So, you know, the dramatist has has good reason to make things uh, shocking, uh, upsetting, and or comedic. Uh, things that maybe aren't in line with uh, our visions of the way things should be rather than um, right now we have a fascination culturally with uh, the grotesque, the shocking, the, these kinds of things, but these are qualities or values that we could outgrow, I guess, if we, if we really put our minds to it and, and try to embrace a, a different way of life.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of fiction tends to be more dystopian as opposed to utopian. And there's a, a general lament or complaint that, there's no good utopian fiction Mm -hmm. because it's too kind of dull or boring. You need the conflict and the drama to make something narratively compelling. Right. Well, let's move on to discuss, sorry, do you want to add something there?
1: Uh, Well, no, I just, I just think that this, the slide, I mean, the the slide of utopian literature into dystopian literature, I think it can be, I think it can be accounted for uh, in the sense that, you know what people are doing when they write a piece of utopian or dystopian fiction is that they're 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 kind of asking a what if question and they're exploring the possibilities and as, as soon as you you look at the you know the what if in the utopian sense the the what if from a an anti-utopian i'd say more than dystopian sense uh, kind of pops up so let's say for example you're considering the effects of a certain technology uh, on human civilization, you think, well, how, how wonderful is this? Life is going to be better for everybody. Uh, as soon as you begin to sort of reflect critically on that, uh, you start to get the the possible drawbacks. I mean, I, I guess you're familiar with, with the Black Mirror series. Uh, they spend a lot of time, you know, dissecting uh, how it is that, you know, what look like on the surface, uh, useful technologies, you know, end up being uh, absolute... The, the, the bane of human human existence. Um, so I think there's a distinction made between, say, a, an actual dystopia and, and an anti-utopia. I think, it, you know, anti-utopian literature takes utopian premises and shows that actually, if you follow this line of thought, what you think is a utopia turns out to be something different. And I think there's the dystopian uh, genre of literature was actually much more pessimistic and says, look, you know, we're bound to make each other miserable. Uh, no matter what the the surface uh, of the surface texture of your society is, you know, essentially we're all trapped in here together, making each other miserable, and you know, <laughs> basically living the Sartrean doctrine that that hell is other people. So I, I think there is a, a distinction made between anti utopian literature and and straight on dystopian literature.
0: Yeah, and no, I think I actually hadn't thought about that distinction, but that's useful. So the, yeah, the dystopian view is more grounded in kind of innate about the human condition. Um, yeah, let's move on to discuss space because, I mean, you know, my starting point with this was, as I mentioned, Star Trek, and I think that um, space exploration has long been associated with utopian thought. But it's not immediately obvious why that the, is the case. So, like, why why is, does space hold such an allure or attraction for utopian thinking?
1: Um, here, I mean, I think there's there's two things there's two main ways to address this question uh the first is that it's a nice say starting over point which every piece of utopian literature needs so when you leave earth you leave the history of our the sordid history of our planet behind and you get you get to put a new a new a new start date on on all your calendars and say okay guess what now now things are different if you ever had you know a chance to recreate your ideology, it would be when you leave the planet. I guess in, in a microcosm, you can see like a, an exchange student, right? They have their year abroad and they come back and they're, they're changed for the experience. They've got a new accent, they're wearing a beret, whatever. I right? like think it's, it's that writ large. So there's, there's, a, there's a very dramatic act in, in leaving the earth. It's, it's, it, it sort of creates the sense of wonderment and it opens up a utopian possibility. Uh, So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, I think, is that you have people living in space, whether they're on a vessel uh, or a satellite or a space station or a colony on another planet. Usually these people uh, in in the utopian space literature, uh, they're going to be living in close quarters with each other. So what it is, it it provides an almost laboratory Like situation where you can look at this sort of microcosm of humanity, and you can see directly how you know introducing the variables that the author finds interesting um, changes the dynamic, uh, makes life better or worse for the people living there, and and so it gives us this very contained structure where we can actually examine uh, people and the effects of uh, technology
0: or ideology. On them, Yeah, I mean, you've written a paper about this where you make certain arguments about, you know, the prospects for utopianism in space. I guess there are two parts to the argument in in that paper, and I've I've written about it on the blog, but you you argue that blueprint utopianism is not compatible with a future of humanity in space, but that this horizontal model of utopianism is. Maybe you could just outline your argument, why why you think that that is true.
1: Essentially, I think that... (laughs) If we try to create a blueprint for what a spacefaring version of us would be, uh, there's, there's too much of a, a cultural gap there. So a space utopia is essentially a utopia not for us, but for a, a successor species. Rem- remember before I talked about the, the human talos, So a telos has to do with the kind of animals we are, essentially, Uh, and that is to say that, you know, we are animals that are not well suited to either space travel uh, or habitation. So a teleological or or a blueprint utopia, to me, it must be by definition an earthbound utopia. Otherwise, we're designing utopias for successor species, and it's really hard to guess what kind of problems they'll have, what kind of values they have, and what kind of Life would best suit beings like that. So, you know, I, I leave that for the successor species to to figure out.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, just to be clear, the um, the kind of Aristotelian model of human flourishing it, it depends on a particular conception of what humans are for and you know, what it, what is conducive to their flourishing. And that is, in your vision, a very much a, an earthbound vision of utopianism that it it requires us staying on the earth because that's the environment that is most congenial to us and most conducive to our flourishing.
1: Yes, I think that's, that's correct. And I mean, I think that the, there are too many <laughs> alterations to our natural condition, some, some that we can uh, predict and some that we can't, which would go against saying that there's some sort of ultimate
0: blueprint for, for space dwelling humans. Yeah. I mean, just one thing that might kind con- of uh, Contradict that. Although this might be compatible with the horizontal model, is that you know there are certain aspirations of humanity or certain um, projects of humanity, like projects of scientific discovery, that are compatible with space exploration. And that, that actually, to achieve those ideals or aspirations to their highest degree, would require space exploration. So you're probably familiar with the work of um, Ian Crawford, who's one of the people who's written a lot about. Uh, the value of space exploration and as a scientific enterprise. I mean, do do you see that kind of continuation of the, the scientific project in this tele- teleological sense or in a horizontal sense?
1: Okay, I, I see. The, I think you could make an argument on either side. Uh, you could say, well, you know, it's our telos to discover, <laughs> and so what we do is we you know, open up space as an avenue for for realizing that. That's one way you you, you could take it. Um, the other way would be to say that, well, you know, what you what you need essentially is to take the horizontal model and say there's there's no there's no endpoint and discovery will open up, you know, further scientific discoveries will open up endpoints or sorry, horizons that we could never before dream of. Right. So uh, I think my 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 feeling on this and what I've what I've written on this sort of indicates that the, the horizon model is more suited for, say, a utopian model of being in space. So yeah, I think maybe in another piece you'd mentioned uh, how, how transhumanism could be incorporated in this model. I think that's, that's absolutely right. So I, I think that, you know, I- embracing the idea that we are a species that redesigns ourselves uh, periodically and, and takes on new forms. I, I think that that's, that fits right in with the horizontal model. So I think that, you know, changing our, ourselves means that we, we, we basically, you know we abandon this idea that we do have a fixed nature so i think that the, there's a there's an incompatibility between the two models and i think that you know the the the, the acceptance that we don't have a final form the acceptance that we have uh, scientific discoveries yet to make that will change our our view about our role in the universe or about what we can become yeah i think this fits into the into the um, horizontal model much more comfortably
0: yeah, i mean i tend to agree with that but then i guess um There are some people who make this odd claim that this drive towards progress is part of our telos. I think um, somebody I interviewed previously on the the show, Steve Fuller, is a fan of that idea that constantly reinventing ourselves and experimenting with ourselves is part of our, our telos. And he actually integrates this with a kind of religious worldview as well, which adds another dimension to it. But um, I mean, I argue. I mean, in a, in
1: a way, right? I mean, we're, these, these uh, arguments are parallel, right? So we could once we once we debate, we can we're, we're debating what it is that is utopian. But that go, if if you tie that back to the tail loss, then we're debating what the tail loss is. I mean, you could say, well, there's there's a certain point where we have to turn our spade and say. This is just what we are. <laughs> and so maybe there there are these sort of uh, uh, fundamental premises, uh, which maybe we we can't necessarily solve by science. There's something essentially value laden, right? And as soon as you describe what the human being's for, and what the perfect way of life is for the human being, you've kind of put your spade in the ground at that point and said, "Guess what? These are the values I have. This is the conception I have." And unless you unless you really to work hard to convince me otherwise. This is what I'm aiming for. So, so yeah, I, I see that there's uh, these are I see these as parallel and related uh, debates.
0: Yeah, and, and to be honest, like this this kind of debate is I think it's philosophically interesting just in the in terms of like how you categorize different theories, but I don't know if it's actually practically interesting, because in practice, both views kind of amount to the same thing. The other point I want to raise about this uh, notion that space exploration is compatible with a horizontal model of utopianism is that it, it depends to some extent on what you conceive the horizon of, as being. So in your paper, you make this allusion to frontierism, the the idea of the frontier spirit in the U.S. in kind of the late 1800s. Um, you referenced that famous book, which the the title of it now escapes me, or the name of the author escapes me, but I'm sure you'll uh, remind me what it is. Um,
1: yes, it's uh, William Turner.
0: Yeah. So, so this idea of like constantly pushing out against a, a frontier is Frederick Turner. Frederick Turner, yeah, pushing out against a frontier as being uh, part of this utopian project or mission. Um, and that the frontier there is conceived of, of in, in terms of a geographical space. Like we're, we're finding new territory to explore, and one view of space exploration is that it's it's a similar model of of the frontier spirit. It's we're, we're finding the new geographical territory to to expand out into, you know, the to use the cliche from from Star Trek, space as the final frontier in a ge- geographical sense, but. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would like to conceive of frontiers in a more abstract sense. I don't, I don't think they're solely geographical. And one of the things that you said in that paper, and I think I'm quoting this correctly, seemed a bit strong to me, which is that like space exploration might be the, provide the only truly unlimited horizon or frontier for humanity to explore, because in this geographical sense. But I, I think that's a little bit strong, because I think there are other kinds of frontiers for us to explore. So you mentioned transhumanism and i've mentioned that as well so like exploring different forms of being different capacities for humanity that's another kind of frontier and uh, i think you know one thing i'm quite interested in is virtual reality and, and virtual utopianism and the virtual space as consisting of frontiers as well you know, new types of experience and possibility that doesn't require moving geographically but um does focus on a different kind of expansion?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, um, bear in mind that the, the the piece you're referencing was a was a chapter uh, planned for the book of the the ethics of space exploration, uh the, edited by uh, James Schwartz and, and Tony Milligan. So, my, my remit in that paper was to kind of uh, focus on the most sort of glaringly obvious uh, <laughs> limitation uh, in the in this sort of spatio uh, sorry the the spatial or geographic sense um, but of course I, I agree with you. you yeah we can push back on all sorts of frontiers but I think that my my critique of what I called in that paper uh, uh, Kantian consolidationism stance which is that if there's any if there's a possibility of any frontier and uh, spatial and geographic uh, frontiers uh, included then then perpetual peace cannot obtain because I mean Let's take the the Internet as a kind of virtual
0: space, right? Just just before you go into this, maybe just explain what Kantian consolidationism is, because I didn't raise it as a question, and people might not be familiar with the concept. Okay, so
1: in his uh, essay on perpetual peace, Kant uh, says essentially that if we let human history develop to the point where... the globe is, you know, more or less fully populated everywhere that people can live, they do. Once you sort of take away the possibility of flight, and here, I mean, it's it's expressly um, phrased in spatial terms for Kant as well. Once you fill that geographical space, then uh, all of a sudden you have the rule of reason, um, kind of. Once, <laughs> in other words, if there's no place to run to, you have to rationally engage with Uh, Other people, you have to, you know, make concord with them, you have to arrive at some sort of uh, solution for the problem of war, because at at that point, I mean, the world really will become, you know, hellish for everybody if, if you don't was his was his reasoning. So, you know, Confronted with this choice between you know, perpetual warfare or perpetual peace, if you're rational, and, and of course Kant thought that we you know, essentially were, come down on the side of perpetual peace. And you accept the rule of law and, and you accept it uh, of your own uh, free will and, and volition and according to laws of reason, what have you. He's talking specifically about geographical space, but I think we can apply uh, the same principles to the kinds of space that you're interested in in discussing. So take the internet as a kind of virtual space. Right? This is this is where most of the I mean from from my personal very limited experiences, it's where I see the majority of human misery emerge from now. And it's exactly, I mean, look, it's a, it's a, it's a brave new world. People are uh, aggressively exploring it. They're trying to annex corners of it. They're trying to you know, lead the dominant discourse this way and that. But there is not this sort of settled state that we could say, okay, we, we are, we've we arrived at a sort of final form of human existence where people are finally going to get along. So yeah, exactly the same kinds of, of problems. So it's, it's either we accept that there are no limits and we kind of accept conflict, we accept frontierism and the the, the conquering of of, what were once past horizons as a sort of dominant mode of human existence, or we shut down all these spaces. We we kind of, we force all actual and virtual exploration to to be restricted to a very small sphere, almost like this uh, space utopia fiction that I was talking about earlier, right? You have the sort of laboratory of a few human beings and the... The rules they live by are well advertised, well promulgated, and, and accepted. Unless you have humanity kind of squished into a, a box like this, and everything's harmonious because it has to be, because there is no you know human curiosity or ambition that can be expressed in that scenario, then I think frontierism is the sort of it's the default closest ideological approximation of what makes animals like us uh, flourish.
0: Yeah, so I mean I find that interesting actually the kind of drawing out the Kantian idea of consolidationism to the cyberspace. So yeah, we're mm. we're still exploring the boundaries of cyberspace and uh, you know in, in theory it would seem that there are no limits to cyberspace like ge- there might be limits to geographical space on the surface of the planet earth and Kant's point was that once we reach those limits, that's a good thing because we'll have to actually make peace with one another but actually in cyberspace with its unlimited boundaries, we don't have to make peace with each other ever, so that would be a little bit disturbing but you could absolutely
1: regulate the internet to the point where you know it exists in the form of say you know five different chat rooms and then one official news organ, you could, you, could, you could actually limit cyberspace considerably if you, if you put your, your minds to it. But remember, the point is that as long as the possibility of reviving the internet as we know it exists, as long as the possibility of reviving the possibility of space travel exists, then that specter uh, still disturbs any sort of Kantian style perpetual peace that could obtain.
0: Yeah, so that's the key part of your argument. So the mere possibility of opening up a frontier is yeah. kind of sufficient to move us away from the, this this Kantian equilibrium which I think is correct so that means that we really have to reconcile ourselves to this more frontierist horizontal model or understanding of, of utopianism well let's move on though because I want to I want to discuss Bernard Suits's work and this is actually the part that I think both of us are most interested in this is something I've never discussed on on the podcast before although I've written about it quite a lot on my blog um so I think it'll be useful just to give people a quick kind of primer or on, on this idea. So it comes from a book written by Bern Suits back in the 70s. It's a, uh, a very odd philosophical dialogue called The Grasshopper. Maybe you could tell us what that book is about and what kind of utopia it sketches.
1: Right. So the first half of the book, well, the, actually, the first three quarters of the book, let's say, uh, are dedicated to defining, uh, contra Wittgenstein, um, what a game is. And the short version of that is um, the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. Uh, and he thinks that you know, playing a game is something that is uh, valuable in and of itself. So we play a game just to be playing the game and nothing else. Uh, and to to have this attitude t- towards play is to have what he calls the losery attitude. So we. We have This is a necessary component of gameplay. If you don't have this attitude, you're not really playing a game. Uh, there's only You're only seeming to play a game. Where this connects to the second half of the book.
0: Sorry, just be- before you go into the second half of the book. Um, so, I mean, okay, Wittgenstein v- famously said that you couldn't define what a game is. That it's, it doesn't have like a, a core essence. It's um, a family resemblance type concept. There are many different kinds of games. And Suits was arguing against that, saying that there is actually an essence to what games are. Now, you gave the short version of it, but you also introduced some of the conditions from the long version of it. And I think it actually would be useful just to discuss the longer definition of it. So he he says a game is something with uh, three conditions, which I can call up here, which is that a game consists of a pre illusory goal, a set of constitutive rules, and a losory attitude. So maybe you could define or give examples of what those three things are.
1: Okay. So, uh, let's take golf, which is one of his, his favorite examples. Uh, in that case, uh, the pre-losery goal, uh, would be something that could be described outside of the game. And so that would be putting the ball in the cup or in the hole. So in order to achieve the pre-losery goal, uh, we have to follow, uh, the constitutive rules. Um, we have to use, in other words, what he calls losery means. And in this case, you swing a golf club right? Uh, You don't touch the ball. um, You don't kick it. um, And moreover, the means that are used, they have to be less efficient than means that you would normally use to achieve the end, right? To achieve the preliminary goal. So obviously the most efficient way to get a ball into a cup is to hold it in your hand, walk over to the hole and and drop it in or place it in gently. That's not allowed. It's an activity which is in itself, uh, it's gratuitous, right? It's uh, It's something that flies in the face of what we would take to be non-losery logic, which is to get the thing done in the most efficient way possible. And to have the loser attitude towards this is to accept the constitutive rules because they make the activity possible. Uh, So we we accept that the rules of the game of uh, golf, for example— Mean that we can't touch the ball just so we can enjoy the challenge of the obstacle provided by putting the ball in the hole with the golf club.
0: Right. So, because this is the important thing that it's um, you're following the constitutive rules. You're following the least efficient way of achieving the pre illusory goal. Not
1: necessarily, not necessarily least, right? Because least least efficient would be like blowing the golf ball, right? <laughs> Getting on your hands and knees and blowing it towards the hole. The hole would be much more difficult.
0: Yeah. So you're following a less efficient means in a way. Yeah. You're, yeah. Um, and actually, but this is a part of what makes the game fun, in a sense. So, like, if, if you just picked up the ball and put it in the hole, there would be no challenge, no interest to the game. So it's it's kind of triumphing over the unnecessary obstacles that are stipulated by the constitutive rules that is, is part of what makes a game worth playing. And we have a losery attitude towards that. We have a willingness to accept those obstacles because we want to participate in the enjoyment of the game.
1: Yeah, there's something, actually, there's something extra to the account that uh, Suits doesn't mention in The Grasshopper that much explicitly, but rather he, he leaves it for an article called The the Elements of Sport, um, wherein he gets into realizing capacities, uh, human capacities. So he, to, the game creates an opportunity for doing something that you wouldn't normally get a chance to do. And realizing these potential capacities uh, is part of what makes life worth living. So it's, 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 it's a kind of morally
0: perfectionist you know, way of looking at uh, uh, sports, if you will, or games. Uh, yeah, so, um, and, but the other thing I wanted to um, mention, which you brought up in the definition as well, is that the game is... Unnecessary. I mean, so it, it it doesn't serve or necessarily serve some higher purpose, except maybe this purpose of kind of developing human capacities. But it's it's a non instrumentalist activity. It's not it's yes. not it, it's pursued for its intrinsic good. And I mean, one of the characterizations of this that I quite like, and I've discussed before, is uh, Thomas Herka's analysis of it. That it's you know it's a way of developing certain kind of procedural goods to their highest extent. Yeah. So like that that's that's an important feature of this definition of the game. So we, we have those. The short definition, it's, it's the triumph over unnecessary obstacles, voluntary triumph over unnecessary obstacles. The longer definition is it's something that fits these three slash four conditions. And that's what is covered in the first uh, two thirds of, of Suits' book. Yes. What's that cover then, in the second?
1: Um, well, in the, in the last, let's, let's say, I don't know, quarter of the book, he gets into the, the utopian uh, vision is what he calls it, the Grasshopper's Utopian Vision, which is a utopia of gameplay. What, so it, here's the thing with suits. Sometimes you feel like there's a contradiction. For example, you pointed out one wherein, yes, the the definition of games implies that it's a completely... Uh, intrinsically valuable activities nothing instrumental about it but then you have this other piece of his that says well actually yeah games are kind of instrumental in bringing out these human capacities which which bring us closer to the good life in the same way you might wonder how his first part about defining games you know ties into the second part about uh, a utopia of gameplay and there are there are things he says about the utopia which are contradictory, which don't sit comfortably with each other. Uh, so let me get into the nuts and bolts as, as quickly as I can here. In some passages, Sut says that gameplay leads to eudaimonia. Uh, he says that it you know it is the expression of the ideal of existence. Uh, he says you know basically it's what humans were would have put on earth to do is to play. And he, he says in different places, look we we work to play. I don't see any other way to to think about it. So in that way, he's making it look like his utopia is a normatively desirable state of affairs. But in another uh, article from 1984, Posthumous Reflections, he says, well, look, I'm not not actually saying that this is normatively desirable. I'm just saying that it's logically inevitable because every instrumental act uh, seeks its own destruction, right? So if I want to scratch an itch then you know by scratching I've I've dissipated the the reason for doing the activity uh, he says once you've achieved once you hit this sort of like uh, point in history which is comparable to the you know room full of monkeys randomly hitting keys until they generate the the works of Shakespeare he says once you hit these sort of hypothetical end of history wherein all instrumental activities uh, have met their natural, point of termination uh, then as a matter of fact you have a utopia or you have this his utopia of, of um, material superabundance or, or post scarcity, uh, however you want to put it, basically the computers uh, he says there'll be computers that are controlled by our minds which will provide us with everything that we could possibly desire at the point of desirement. So you don't even have to have the, the experience necessarily of discomfort of waiting for something. It's just, it's just there as soon as you wish. So there's this, this is a weird paradox between or this, this odd contradiction in, in different parts of his work where he says, look, this is just the way things are going to be. I'm not trying to sell you a vision of a blueprint utopia. In another place, he says, well, this is the ideal of existence and we really ought to be designing games now in the present uh, in order to prepare ourselves for the uh, for this great utopia, which is almost from a historically materialist point of view, waiting for us in the future.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot going on there, which I want to try and just uh, unpack a bit. So so basically, the the motivation here is that much of our lives currently are occupied with instrumental activities. We have to get food and material resources and shelter and money in order to survive. And we, we occupy our time by performing activities that get us these things. One of the functions of technology oftentimes is to try and make it easier for us to get things that we want. I mean, some people might disagree with that, and I appreciate that. But you know, one plausible conception of what technology does, it, it makes it easier for us to satisfy our instrumental desires and needs. And one of the things that Suits is doing in the grasshopper is imagining a state or a society of technological perfection, where we have invented technologies that will literally give us everything we want at press of a button, or in fact, just by wishing or imagining what we want, it, they will it will come into existence. Okay. And, you know, again, there's some plausibility to that. You can see ways in which technology is trying to be used to create a, a society of material abundance where we can, you know, print houses at the press mm-hmm. of a button or something like that. You, you, there's some plausibility to this, this uh, notion or this kind of technologically determinist notion that that's, that's the direction in which we're going. And so, so what Suit seems to be saying then is that once we reach this state of te- technological perfection, what will be left for us to do? And the argument is, well, the only thing that's really left for us to do is to play games. And that, that's kind of the inevitability thesis But it also kind of happens that this is a really good thing as well, because that's the highest ideal or expression of humanity. That's what we should be aiming for or striving for is this state of technological perfection where we have nothing else to do but to amuse ourselves with game.
1: Yeah, that's what ties together uh, the first and second sections, right? So if playing a game is a voluntary attempt to overcome an unnecessary obstacle, well, in The perfected future that Suits describes, every obstacle is an unnecessary obstacle. And because you are not obligated to do anything for your survival, then it's by definition voluntary. So, your example of like pressing a button and having a house be produced by the supercomputers uh, Suits says that, you know, building a house will be a game in utopia, but it's a game by definition. And, and this is this is something that I brought out in a, in a paper of mine called Endless Summer, uh, What Kind of Games Will Suits as Utopians Play. Uh, I, I sort of made another, you say I'm famous for making distinctions. Here's a distinction, again, between uh, games by definition and games by design or games by default, I guess is what I call it. So a, a game by default would be something like house building, which was never, you know, intended as a game. It just is a game because everything is a game uh, in Suits as Utopia. And that, that falls into his his first conception of something sort of historically inevitable and, you know, we'll just be playing games. That's just the way it's going to be. Um, but his his more ambitious utopian vision is that which says that, you know, we'll be playing games by design. And he goes, he describes them very, uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't describe them <laughs> is a better way to put it. But he just says they'll be really magnificent. They'll be really engaging they're going to be the bread and butter of utopian existence, and just hold to your hats—they're going to be fantastic. So he makes an assertion that there are such a thing; there, there is a category of utopian games, uh, games and sports, unthought of today. Uh, but he doesn't necessarily commit to what form those will take, and so I think that you know, it's the task for us, uh, you know, Sutzi and scholars to to figure out you know what the conceptual space is that that he's describing and what what form those games
0: might take. Yeah, and no, just to kind of make one point here before we get into your critiques of this ideal, you know, I find the Sutian conception of a utopia to some extent compelling, or at least, you know, again... As I mentioned at the outset, uh, I'm, I'm more driven by the curiosity about these ideas as opposed to, let's say, any sense that this would indeed be a perfect world or an ideal world. But, you know, I, I find there's, there's something to this idea that getting rid of instrumental activity and playing games is utopian in some sense because it gets rid of a lot of the strife from human life and replaces it with something else, which uh, is pursued just for its intrinsic merits, just for fun. And, you know, I, I see something compelling to that idea. Uh, you're critical of it. I mean, I have an analysis of your critique uh, on my blog, which I say that your major concern is that this utopian vision is not intelligible. It, it, there's not the, you try to understand what it is, but it's actually it's too distant or difficult for us humans in our present condition to understand what what suits as utopian games are, which means it's just not a a compelling utopian vision. So maybe you could outline that critique of Suits' idea.
1: Well, uh, in a way, it's, it's just parallel to the concerns that I laid out about uh, space utopianism. It's saying, look, there's a cultural gap between a culture of scarcity, the one that we inhabit, and a culture of plenitude uh, that the uh, kinds of utopians that Suits is describing uh, would inhabit. Their value system is bound to be uh, radically different than ours. And so the games that entertain them are bound to be very different from the ones we play. Um, and we can make some sort of uh, speculations about that. You might say, well, you know, in, in a, in a world where everybody has everything that they could possibly want, you know, the games will be uh, cooperative rather than competitive, perhaps. Right. And this is one thing that we can say, we, we can start to sort of guess what their culture might be like but suits says that we have a duty to design games for utopians in the present and to me that's a bit like asking a tailor to make a suit for a person they've never seen right it's it's a, but,
0: it's a why does suits say that why does he say that we presently have a duty to to do that
1: uh, okay so he, I'll, I'll read you the passage he doesn't really back it up uh, other than to say that you know utopia depends on this because if the games aren't ready when utopia happens, then there's a danger that it will collapse because he has this conception that we're, we're addicted to um, instrumental activities, right? We are addicted to doing work. And once we are in a situation, a historical situation where that's absent, uh, we will basically go into withdrawal. And he thinks that uh, there's a danger that, the first generations of utopians may may just kill themselves off for the lack of having anything meaningful to do, and so he he offers these games by default as a kind of uh, occupational methadone. He des- he describes it in, in an unpublished piece that he uh, that he wrote. So. I mean, essentially, that's the reason behind his his urging us to start the game, to start the job of designing utopian games now.
0: So yeah, he do, so he does give some guidance in the book about like what what these games wouldn't be like. So what what makes them different from the kinds of games that we currently play? And you have a, a critique of that idea of like what what features they wouldn't have as well. So like, what's that critique?
1: Uh, well, he, he says that there's there's no room for basically ethical life because there there can't be anything that happens that is that is morally wrong in a utopia so there there won't be things like uh, intentional fouling happening in, happening in games right there won't be lying to referees or you know or trying to to rattle your opponent by using underhanded psychological tactics he says that all of his utopians will be through some mysterious process psychologically perfected individuals so they won't have the capacity for this kind of um, what we call is sort of gamesmanship, right, which is sort of being using any and all means possible that are not explicitly uh, prohibited by the rules to achieve a win. Uh, then we won't have that kind of mean <laughs> culture in-game that we kind of see in professional sports, for example. And the fact that, you know, the money will be absolutely meaningless in a uh, in a post Scarcity utopia means that uh, a lot of the pressure to to compete to the very highest limits of, of you know human ability will be eliminated from from the situation. So hopefully, I guess that what that says is that you won't have people intentionally injuring each other on, on you know, the football field or the basketball court. Um, you also uh, won't have games that are that are boring, right? Because the whole function of utopian games is to keep uh, utopian life meaningful. So if you have a game that's boring, like if you if you if you only have basically the games you find in your grandparents' closet, like you know Monopoly and, and uh, checkers or tic-tac-toe or whatever, you, there's there's sort of a limited amount of engagement or enjoyment you can derive from these games. Partially because either they're too simple or uh, they rely too much on chance, and in which case you know the you can't really express your agency through them, which means that they don't have the potential for uh, sustaining meaningful engagement in the long term and that's why we abandon a lot of these games as we enter adulthood because we can see through them right so once you know the trick um, to mastering tic-tac-toe it's no longer a game of any practical interest to you it might be a game of sort of theoretical interest but it, it, it's never it's never going to to compel you to to play that game except maybe to train uh a child or something in how to beat it so the games can't be simple they can't be uh unethical um they can't i think my other criticism now on the top of my head
0: um and it's just on the unethical thing so there were two points you made like one is that it can't contain these on un, this unsportsmanlike behavior uh which you mentioned but then it also you, you kind of argue that games that are intrinsically immoral would also be problematic. So games that involve like in- intentionally harming another person. you know, bo- Boxing, you could argue, is a game that is intrinsically immoral or a sport that's intrinsically immoral because it, it requires in- intentionally inflicting harm on another person. And yes. the suggestion is that that kind of game also would be banned in this utopia.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think maybe you, you, you'd criticize me on that by saying that, well, what if we had a machine that could automatically heal somebody? Um, I mean, I guess... You're still, you're still experiencing – you still are doing harm to somebody. You still are inflicting pain on them. The fact that the, the, the harm is reversible, does it make it any, any better? I'm not sure that it, that it does. I'm not sure that you can say that, well, look, um, I'm going to burn down your house, but I'm going to build you another one. Don't worry. It's going to be just the same. <laughs> you, you've still done something kind of uh, morally uh, dubious there, I think. I don't, I
0: don't think... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that goes to, like, what you think is... This is an interesting kind of philosophical question about what makes something harmful or unethical, um, and you, whether the reversibility of harm or the replaceability of something that has been damaged makes harming it less bad in in some sense. I mean, I, I have conflicting emotions on, on that or intuitions on that. Uh, you know, one of the features of this new Netflix the series Altered Carbon, I don't know if you've been watching that, is that you know there's there's a future in which the, the biological body doesn't really mean anything more, anymore because people's minds are uploaded to these s- computer chips that can be transferred between different bodies. And so that means that actually they, they play all these games where they kill each other just for fun um, because they know that they can just restore themselves to another body in the future. And there's definitely something un- deeply unsettling about that. But I think it also gets at a, something that that's true is that... We, there's a triviality to harm in this world because everything is so easily repairable. Um, And I, I I think I lean more towards the view that it's, it's something to do with the kind of sustained harm or the duration of the harm that makes something uh, problematic. Um, But yeah, I mean, the other thing about boring games, I, you know, I agree that certain games would become dull if you know the solution to them, they wouldn't hold any challenge, and that the, the value of playing a game is lies in the challenge. But then I think my critique of that is just that, well, why couldn't we have a series of games that you play? So uh, you know, I thought the critique, the, the total set of games that Utopians play can't be boring, but that doesn't mean that individual games can't have resolutions or be solved at some point in time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could say that, for example, the the value of reading a detective novel is diminished the second time because you already know the culprit right but that won't you know, that won't decrease the enjoyment you take of reading the next detective novel right I, I, unless you get so good at reading detective novels that you like you know from page one you're like okay never mind i've got i've got this
0: right? These are so obvious or something like there's there's a, sh- there's a limited repertoire of moves that the author can make and you can just spot it instantly what's going to happen
1: yeah i suppose so that's the that's the thing uh, there's a, there's a couple of things i want to return to Uh, You could say, well, you know, what's better? Is it to play uh, a game with, you know, amazingly engaging, immersive gameplay, right? Stuff that, you know, will keep you there uh, as long as you want to play? Or... You know, a string of fairly simple amusements that are disposable. I mean, that's that's again, that's a question for the philosophers. Maybe I'll maybe I'll take that one up in in a, in a return to the paper. But I my strong sense is that the first kind of game is more more valuable in some sense. Um, the other thing that you discuss would be the the, the harm uh, factor. I mean, it reminds me of the biblical story of Job, right? So you know. God tests the faith of his servant Job and, you know, in the process it destroys a, a good number of his members of his family. And then at the end says, hey, guess what? You were a good servant. You were faithful to the end. Here's a new wife. Here's a new kid. Right. <laughs> I still think the harm's been done there. I, I'm not I'm not so. Um, uh, for some for some reason, like the the original relationships which were destroyed in that story. And I realize there's different ways to to interpret the tale and whatnot, but. I, I don't think that you know the harm has been reversed in the end of the story. Even if, even if he threw in a couple of extra members of the family that didn't exist before, there's still something uh, wrong that happened there. And so,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with that example. But um, uh, yeah, like this is going to require a longer conversation. But so, so the you know if you destroy my beloved pet. Uh, you kill my beloved pet that I've had this long-term relationship with, and replace it with another pet that just happens to be almost identical and as good. I, I, I agree that there's something wrong with that. The idea of you know physically injuring me in some way and then I can repair myself totally to the same state—that uh, seems different. But I don't know if I can pinpoint what the difference is.
1: Whether or not biological fixity is required in utopian sports, and this is a sort of ongoing debate I have with my supervisor. Uh, at the Open University, uh, John Pike, uh, we say that, you know, for example, if you enter into a boxing ring in a suit scene utopia, you kind of have to turn the computers off at that point because the computers, as you recall, give you everything you desire at the moment you desire it. So if you're boxing and you get, uh, you're about to be punched in the face, what you strongly desire uh, is to not be punched in the face. right? So in which case, it seems like in this... Uh, this thought experiment that that Suits has offered us, uh, it seems that either your computers are off and you're suffering real harm. In other words, the the economy of your bodily uh, integrity is put at jeopardy, real jeopardy. Uh, or basically, you're having a war with your mind, wherein you know it's really just what I desire. How how put that can desire a better state of affairs than I'm currently encountering on the utopian. Field of sport, <laughs> if you see what I mean, right? So uh, I, I want really powerful legs. I want the most powerful legs that you know a, a being like me can have, so I can kick this soccer ball through the net, you know, and knock over any players you know in the way. <laughs> and then, so then it becomes like it becomes a more abstract debate about you know the fixity of of, of uh, human uh, physiological limitations and whether those hold in a utopia. And if they don't, can we still call it a, an actual sport? Yeah, there's there's a longer debate.
0: Yeah, I think I think that part of that has to go with like whether you accept the constitutive rules of the game or not, because you have to suspend the technological perfection because you might have this temptation to use the machinery to overcome the obstacles within the game through means other than those that are allowed by the stipulative uh, constitutive rules, or just make things easier. But then, you know, I used to play video games when I was younger. Uh, when I where I had like these detailed walkthroughs of how to play the game, so it told me you know, how to succeed at the game from start to finish. But I still kind of enjoyed that process, even though I had a lot of assistance with how the, how the game worked, and I, I didn't completely accept all the kind of obstacles that were imposed. So I, I don't know. Since I, we are already short of time, I do want to just ask one other question. Which so one of your other critiques of of the Sutzyan Utopia beyond the the problems with actually designing these utopian games and what they would look like, is just that the whole notion of a post-instrumentalist society is, again, deeply alien to us. There's a, there's a significant cultural gap between where we are now and where we're supposed to be in this Suitsian world.
1: Uh, I think that there's this... You, you got me a bit wrong. Uh, you, you In your critique of me, you, you drew a diagram where a hyper-instrumentalist society to post-instrumentalist society... Um hyper-instrumentalist society is not where we currently are, but rather where previous generations were. Like, you could think about, like, Neanderthals and and everything up to the point where you start to have a leisure class, I would call, you know, a hyper-instrumentalist society. So, in other words, you can – your only thought or your, your – if you have a free moment, it's it's the exception rather than the rule, and most of your actions are geared towards – uh, just getting what you need to continue your survival. I would say that where we currently are is something more towards an instrumentalist society. So it's not hyper-instrumentalist, but most of the things we do uh, are geared towards uh, making some sort of product or securing uh, our existence or the existence of our progeny or what have you. Um, where the Suits' utopia is located, on your, on your chart there, I mean, it's... That's the point of debate between between you and I. You're saying that uh, suits as utopia is a hypo-instrumentalist society. Uh, what I'm saying, like, it's a post-instrumentalist society. So hypo-instrumentalism is essentially the idea that if you do something instrumental, it's the exception rather than the rule. Most of your activity is is of intrinsic value to you. You have, say, 95% of your time allotted to things that you you just want to do uh but nothing that you need to do and that's i don't think that five percent of instrumental activity um exists in what you call a strictly or post instrumentalist society and i think it's the strictly post instrumentalist society that is unintelligible because i think that we don't really know what it is to never want anything or never need anything that to me is uh very odd it kind of it's life as a god so to speak right that's that's the thing that we're being asked to to imagine I could be talked down I could be talked down into saying that yeah what suits means and where I probably should put him is in the hypo instrumentalist camp and here's the reason because of the games <laughs> because of the voluntary limitation of means uh, we can say that there there are some because there are some games that call for the turning off of the supercomputers that give you everything you want when you want it, you can say that's merely hypo-instrumentalism rather than full post-instrumentalism. But the problem with this, the problem with this concession that, that maybe I, I might become from making is, is the following. If Suits' Utopia consists exclusively of a series of games being played wherein the computer is always off so that you have the sort of maximum uh, chance to (laughs) say uh, exercise your capacities, uh, then really most of the activity becomes instrumental in that sense because why? Okay. So even though we voluntarily uh, limited our means for hitting a golf ball across the course, you can say that the golf club still is an instrument for hitting it, right? We still say that, you know, the, within the game, there is an instrumental logic, right? Outside of the game, it looks ridiculous. Why, why, the, why the hell are you, you know, chasing that ball around the golf course with a stick? Um, but within the game, you are permitted to use the most efficient means possible, given the rules, And I think that if we turn the computers off in Suzy's Utopia and say, yeah, most of the activities, in fact, all of the activities, by definition, are going to be games. And those games are more interesting if you limit the powers that you have to play them. uh, Then we're looking like, actually, we're in Suzy's Utopia now. Like, Utopia is actually instrumentalist, wherein most of our activities are still oriented around getting things done the most efficient way possible. And I think that is... uh, a bit of a reductio of the utopia. So it's either we do a reductio of the utopia and say, actually, since utopia is an instrumentalist society, or we take my route and say, well, actually, it's, it's it's truly post-instrumentalist, and that's why it's so alien to us. And that's why we can't accurately describe the kind of games that they would play and why we we are very poor designers of those games.
0: Yeah, I mean, what, like what you say about the, the kind of paradox or the reductio here makes me think that actually... I mean, I think you're correct that it, it's it's difficult to imagine what a truly post instrumentalist society would be. But that makes me wonder then whether instrumentalism is the best framework for thinking about what what this world would look like or what we should be imagining, and whether it's just the the re- replacement of one kind of set of needs with another set of needs, and the yes. the suggestion that the what's, what we're replacing are our current needs for food, shelter, material wealth, and so forth with which is like competence and success in playing a game
1: mm-hmm.
0: that might just be a better world and it is not nothing really to do with whether it's instrumental or not. It's just that the, the kinds of goals or aims in the Sutsi society are just better than the goals and aims that we have in the current society.
1: Yes. I think that's, that's what sort of, that's the next step in the debate. I think
0: I have a class that I need to actually teach in a few minutes so um, I would love to continue this conversation, um, but I'm going to have to draw a line underneath it. But, um, yeah, let's just kind of thank you for again for joining me for this conversation. And you know, I'll be sure to provide a link to all the papers that you've written on this topic. And, um, yeah, thanks, thanks again.
1: John, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for this.